right. Well, we're in Judges chapter 8. We're talking about Gideon once again. And many people don't know the story of Gideon. A lot of Christians do. They know about the last few chapters. They know about that victory and the cry, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Many Christians, though, do not know about chapter 8. This is the book of Judges, y'all. Do I have to remind you? It's all downhill every time. And we're going to see that our heroes are always human outside of Christ. Anytime we have our eyes on any person as an exemplar, as a hero, as a person that we're to follow their shining example, if it's outside of Jesus Christ, we will be disappointed sooner or later. And we're going to talk about that. But first, we're going to begin with a word of prayer. And we'll see that Judges chapter 8 has two sections. And we'll explain that as we go. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you are our shining example, that you sent your son to show us the way, that way of perfection, and that we can have a relationship with him through him. We pray that we would understand him more as we study Gideon's life and the work that you have done through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start off with verses 1 through 3 in chapter 8. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezar? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. In Proverbs, it says, a soft answer turns away wrath. And that's what we see here. What is Ephraim's problem? Ephraim was not one of the original tribes called to the battle. Remember the previous chapter, they had the battle, and then Gideon sent out messengers, hey, um, you guys, we want to have your soldiers with us. Well, Ephraim wasn't on that list. And so they weren't given that opportunity until the battle had already taken place and they were winning. And then you remember the end of the previous chapter, Gideon sent out word to almost all of Israel, come and send your guys. And Ephraim did. They answered the call. They're in battle. And so Ephraim is upset. What are they upset about? They are upset that they don't get the credit. They are upset because of their pride and their ego. What do you mean? We would have showed up. We would have been first. Why did you call us out at the end? See, they're not as interested in the fact that the Lord has given them victory. They're upset that they weren't the ones used in that victory. What we're going to see in this whole chapter, whether it's Ephraim or whether it's Gideon himself, is people of the flesh, our broken nature. That left to ourselves, apart from Christ, we will always slide. We will always look after ourselves. And again, just as we have been studying from getting the last two chapters, this is an encouragement. This isn't about beating us up about how we're going to mess up. It's an encouragement that, yes, you can set your watch. You're going to mess up. But God is going to remain faithful in the midst of those things. So Ephraim's wrath is turned away because Gideon, he's a smart guy, and he just says, you guys are better than everyone else. What's the big deal? You, you guys are so awesome, so fabulous. You're the best ever, greatest in the whole world, something like that. And then Ephraim 
Ephraim's, their anger subsided, it says in verse 3. Now let's look at verses 4 through 12. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went up from there to Peniel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Peniel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. You read that right. That's quite a statistic. Verse 11. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in the tents on the east of Noba and Jogbihah, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. We have a pretty big chunk of text. We're going to do the same thing in the next section. But what has happened here? Gideon has taken his 300 men. They have outpaced the rest of the army. They are recon. They are in the front, and they are chasing the Midians, the Midianites so far. They're going to the east that they've reached the Jordan River. As they're getting there, they've run out of provisions. And so they go to these two tribes, these two cities, and they say, what do you have to eat? Do you have any bread so that you can feed us on the way? What they say back makes sense. They're pretty much saying, well, have you beaten them? Because if you haven't beaten them and I give you any food and they come back, we're going to die. That's pretty much what they're saying. But have you ever met a hungry, angry guy that's been working hard all day? Like, what's their patience like? Are they gracious and loving? Do they smell good? No. I see the ladies smirking. Some of them are wincing because they know. Angry, frustrated, short temper. And Gideon says, excuse me? Excuse me? You don't have food for me? That's fine. And then he says something that's seemingly spiritual back to them. When the Lord delivers me, when I win, and when I return, he is proclaiming it. Remember, he's outnumbered by thousands again, and he's tired, and he's weary. Now, what I'm not explaining very well is that's like a long work day. A long work day is hard. Give me, don't get me wrong. A long blue-collar construction out in the sun South Carolina work day, that'll drain the life out of you. That's not combat. Like, that's a different level. Uh, the only experience I have with that is in boxing, and a three-minute round is like three hours. Your adrenaline's pumping, your fear is going, and these guys have been battle all day. They have been running miles. Imagine combat, hand-to-hand, and running a marathon. That's where these guys are at. 
So we can't even imagine the level of exhaustion. When it says here in verse 4, exhausted but still in pursuit, that is an understatement. We don't even know what that's like. And he's like, hey, can we just get some bread? And that's when he replies back, when I come back here, I'm going to kill you all. That's what he's saying. You understand? This isn't like, uh, hey, I'm really upset with you right now. In a little bit, I'm going to calm down. And I, I want you guys to be in the text when he has just left the battlefield where there are bodies lying everywhere, some of them his friends, and he says to these people, you're next because you didn't help me out. Now we're going to talk about the spiritual. This is descriptive. This is not proscriptive. Has God been asked what to do here? Has he prayed? Has he asked for wisdom? Is this the right decision? No, the Lord's not mentioned here. He's being spiritual in his mind. When the Lord grants me victory here, I'm coming back and I'm going to slay you all. But he's operating in his flesh. Personally, this speaks to me because I'm that guy. I'll just push harder. And the harder I push, the more productive I have, the more energy is happening. But that doesn't mean I'm making good decisions. That doesn't mean that I'm being good to people. That doesn't mean I'm doing the Lord's will, even if I say I am. Oh, the Lord's blessed me with this strength. He's blessed me with this stamina. He's blessed me with this intelligence. I'm going to make all these things happen. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to get up earlier. I'm going to go later. The Lord's going to bless me. Well, that as you sow, that shall you also reap. But what does the Bible say? If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap of the Spirit. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap of the flesh. You can get a lot of stuff done with the flesh, and you can destroy a lot of things too, a lot of relationships, a lot of ministry, a lot of business, a lot of family can be done. We need to be very, very careful when we are weary or when we are tired because we are human. We are human, and we need to know this about ourselves. Now, let's not completely punch Gideon in the metaphorical mouth, shall we? He has a small elite task. He could have easily said, I've done my duty. I'm done. We won the battle. But he is relentless. He is chasing these guys down. If there's a problem, I am not going to allow this problem to come back and haunt my tribe ever again. And so he is going after them. And he is outnumbered again. Remember, he's only got 300 against thousands. And guess what happens? End of verse 12, and routed the whole army. That small group, that small army, defeated a much larger army because they just wouldn't quit. And so we see that there is some strength in the ability to persevere. Um, in the commentaries, this is for you guys that like to do extra credit, uh, Spurgeon had some great quotes about this section, about how um, in one of them, I just can't help it, I'm going to mention one of them anyway. He said that if you're not weary in your Christian ministry, what are you even doing? That's what, that's what uh, if, are you saying the Lord's not worthy of your weariness, that you are not working hard enough in your purpose for the Lord? And so I'm obviously butchering it in its context because he's got King James English and it sounds poetic. But he's just pretty much saying, what are you doing? Like that you're not pursuing as hard as you can after the Lord, that you're not pushing to weariness. And I thought, man, that's really encouraging. That's completely opposite of what I'm trying to teach, though. So we're just going to send that as extra credit to you guys. 
But I love how Gideon says, when I come, when the Lord delivers them, when I win, and I will return just by faith. And I want you to notice something, though. Did he talk like that in the last two chapters? Y'all, this is the same guy that's like, hey, Lord, I know I spoke to you under the tree. I know you've already given me one sign. Can you give me another sign? Because I'm not quite sure. But in his flesh, he's a different person. In his pride and in his ego on the other side of victory and tired, oh, no, I'll kill you all because God's going to deliver, deliver them into my enemies. That's a different human. And that's encouraging, especially for the guys here, but I know it's true of the gals too. You can be two different people depending on what day it is, the what hour it is. Honestly, let's be honest with ourselves. Depending on whether we ate or not, depending on whether we slept or not, but we have to be encouraged to know that God knows every single part of us. He knows every side of us. He, he knows these things about us, and He's chosen us, and He will never leave us nor forsake us. Occasionally, we think that God's with us when we're in our spiritual self and not when we're in our fleshly self. Romans teaches us that's not the truth. He's there at all times. Well, this isn't over. The battle may be done. The Midianites may be defeated. But what is next? Well, I'll give you a hint. Gideon is a lot of things, but he is a man of his word. So let's read verses 13 through 21. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle, from the ascent of Heres. That's the name of the battle. And he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. Then he tore down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the city. And he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said, They were my brothers, the son of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. So Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon rose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's necks. You will never look at a Gideon Bible the same way ever again. You're welcome, by the way. When you see that Gideon's, I want you to remember chapter 8, not just chapter 6 and 7. I mean, Gideon here has become a savage. He goes back to the two towns. He takes the kings, the Midianite kings, with him alive in chains. And this is how I picture it. He throws them down at the leaders of those towns and says, are they in my hands now? You got some bread for me now? And then he whips them with thorns and briars and he kills all the leaders of those towns. You talk about being in your flesh. Now, remember, this is descriptive, not proscriptive. 
the Bible is just simply recording the deeds of men. God did not tell him to do this. God did not tell him this is right. God did not say this is justified. Not, none of that. God told him to go defeat the Midianites. That's the last we've heard from the Lord. Everything from here since, Gideon is just unleashed. Then after he does this, and he kills these guys, these leaders, and tears down their towers, and does everything he said he was going to do, he then looks at those two Midianite kings and says, you guys are guilty of killing some people. I want you to confess for it. And the scripture here, the way it's written, these two kings had Gideon's brothers killed, if we take it literally. And I do, I take it literally. And so he is telling them, you need to confess to killing my brothers. And so they, he asked them, what did they look like? And they pretty much say, well, they look just like you. They look just like you. You can feel the tension here. Uh, again, I don't want us to think of the children's ministry, you know, nice uh, children's book. Like this is the reality of the historical events. There are dead people everywhere. This is not good. This is all a type of the flesh, by the way of our sinful nature, of what we do when our passions are, are unleashed. And so you have these city leaders everywhere, and then you have these two Midianite kings. Now, these guys are tough. They're not begging. They're not even crying. They pretty much look Gideon in the eye and say, yeah, they look just like you. What are you going to do about it? And so Gideon tells his son, all right, kill these guys. I have no idea what the age is here. I mean, we can read into the Hebrew and we can say, you know, it, it seems, knowing from the bar mitzvah and the tra traditions that he's, they're called a youth, he's, the son is probably 10 to 12 years old. And so, again, I'm just guessing that's very dangerous. Hey, 10 to 12-year-old, get your sword out, kill these guys. And now he breaks down. He's not doing it. Because the Bible records because he's afraid, because he's still a youth. Hey, I like to toughen my sons up, but fathers, if you have young kids, young boys here, they are still boys. So be careful. You gotta, you gotta put it in the iron. The, you gotta put the iron in the fire. You gotta let it warm up, and then you gotta let it cool down. And then you put it in the fire a little bit more, and then you let it cool down. That's how you toughen the steel up. If you go too fast and you cool it, you'll crack it. There's one warning to fathers in the New Testament. What does it say? Do not provoke to wrath. I'm guilty. I'm glad Megan's not in here right now. She'd be like, amen. <laughs> so what does Zalmunna and Ziba say? I mean, this is the coolest part to me. They say, rise yourself and kill us. Oh, you can't kill, you, what? Just do it yourself. That's what they're saying. Man, I hope that when it comes to the end for me, I am able to speak like this. Like, he just, they just look him in the eye and say, if that's what you want to do, then just do it. You think you're man enough? Then make it happen. For as a man is, so is his strength, they say. That's quite the last words, isn't it? Because Gideon takes his swords out and he cuts them to pieces. Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that around the, their camel's neck. So this is their, their fancy stuff and just says, that's mine now. Takes it. That's not very spiritual. That's not very nice. This isn't even good. No one's going to look at this person and say, you know what, this is pastor material right here. This is a servant of God. But God chose Gideon. 
Gideon is God's judge for the hour. We are all broken, people. I think that personally, this is my personal opinion now, we know that we have to be very careful, especially when I express my opinion. Pastor worship and pastor um, just making them as model human beings and look, oh, that's so-and-so or that's such-and-such and they're doing this and their church is this and that. They are just people. They're men. I hope they're men. They are men. They are men of like passions. They are sinful. They are men of the flesh. If you cut them off in traffic, they're probably not praying for you. You know, and, and over and over again, we hear these things come out, even things that aren't so bad. All of We're kind of numb now to men that have fallen in their fallen nature and they've, you know, fallen from the pastoral. But even just when it comes out that they were like mean to wait staff one day or, you know, they were rude to somebody that was on their staff once and then now it's on Facebook and it's gone viral. Oh, I can't believe it. Meanwhile, the person that posts that's like beating their dog and divorced because they beat their spouse, casting judgment. We are all guilty before God. And Gideon, we're going to see, I'm going to warn you, it's going to get worse, not better, as we continue in this chapter. I want to inoculate the fellowship of Calvary Chapel, Low Country from looking at anyone with too much esteem except for Jesus Christ himself. Peter, look at him. Look at the apostles. Look at Paul himself. Look at the conflict between Paul and Peter. We want to have a biblical worldview, and we don't want to look at anybody greater than they are, especially when it takes any, any, any glory away from the Lord and what He does. Does that mean we don't have a healthy respect or we don't acknowledge what God is doing in certain individuals or their calling? Of course not. We just need the pendulum to swing back a little bit. It's just gone too far in some circles. I would say in others, it's gone too far the other way, where they're just completely disrespected. Who cares? You know, you could just look at um, modern television and what they do to anybody named pastor. They're just constantly mocked. We want the pendulum to be right where the Bible says. Gideon, when you do great, we praise God. Gideon, when you are a man of the flesh, stop it, man. Stop it. That being said, I have an awful lot of respect for what he's doing here. But I also want to be like, who are you? What happened to the guy that was at home threshing the flour? That, that guy that was scared to even go to his father's house and knock down the idol because of what the people would say. This is a completely different person now. Well, let's continue in verses 22 through 32. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor my son will rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. That sounds good. Let's keep going. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you, that each one of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, We will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Uh, for us, that's about 50 pounds of gold. 
besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains which were around their camels' necks. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city Orpha. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. And their country was quiet for forty years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had seventy sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Orpha of the Abizarites. So 50 pounds of gold plus his own um, spoils of war that he took. He becomes a very, very rich man. And they ask him to become king. And he says, no, you can't make me king. God is king. But then you saw it. He uses that gold and he makes an ephod. Did God tell him to do that? No. Isn't there already a tabernacle? Yes. Isn't there already another way that they should be worshiping? Yes. It's an imitation of what God has ordained, and it's His, and it is not the way that God said. And it says that Israel plays the harlot because of it in verse 27. All Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. And then he, then he starts adding wives and concubines. Why does he do that? Again, descriptive, not proscriptive. God never, ever says that polygamy is good. He made male and female. He ordained them husband and wife. Shouldn't be adding to it. In the Old Testament, it is described because they were doing it all the time. And we, th- we kind of think of like uh, many wives and concubines, and we add, we look at it as a purely sexual thing. And you're not entirely wrong. But in the Old Testament and in those tribes, it's a sign of wealth. I can take care of all these people. I can feed all these people. I can have a huge tribe with all these people. Mind you, from the 1800s all the way back to Adam and Eve, the number one focus of humanity was making enough food to eat every day. It's not until modern society that we're able to produce so much food that we are the most obese nation in the planet and history because you you just couldn't produce that much. And so 55% of your income or more all the way back was going to just making food. And 60% of the culture, even in America to the 1800s, was in agriculture. So things are changed. So when you had this huge family and you're feeding all these people, you're pretty much saying, um, here's my 37 cars and my four jets. This is a real sign of wealth. Now, the other things, they definitely come along with it. But I just want us to have a complete understanding of why they were doing those things at that time. Am I saying that they should do that? Of course not. Of course not. All you got to do is look to the scripture as it describes in detail all the bad things that happen from it. For example, having a concubine who names their son Abimelech. What does that name mean? 
It means my father, a king. So this concubine's like, oh, okay, I'm going to make my son number one in this family clan, and he can follow after Gideon. Abimelech's name comes up later as somebody else's child, and now you know what that name means. It's just a pure pride, 100% pride. Gideon has become a rich man. He has become a national leader, an icon. People are believing every dumb thing that comes out of his mouth. He makes an ephod, and the people are like, that's a great idea. Let's just go against God's law and do things our own way. Obviously, you must be speaking for God because you were so successful before. Clap, clap, clap. Go on the speaking tour, you know, buy his books, listen to his podcast. And nobody wants to call him out and say, this is dumb. I love what you did before, but you've lost your mind. And it has become a snare to Gideon. And so Gideon slides. The farther away he gets from that moment with Jesus under the tree, the farther away he gets from that, the worse off he is, even in his successes. All of chapter 8 and half of chapter 7, we don't even hear about the Lord speaking to him. He's not receiving. He's not getting refreshed. He's not getting refilled. Yeah, he, he may be successful in everything materially, relationships and people and popularity and prestige and leadership. But he does not have a personal relationship with God. What is it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? Of course, I believe that Gideon is a believer. He spoke to the Lord. He followed the Lord. He was obedient. But ultimately, Gideon is a failure. And God chose him. That's refreshing. I am a failure. And so are you. We are people of the flesh. We war the flesh and the spirit. And God has chosen me and he's chosen you. He's filled you with his spirit. And we have a personal relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ. Gideon teaches us here that no matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we strive, no matter how tough we are, no matter how smart we are, apart from Christ, we are nothing. Apart from the Lord, we will fail. Well, let's read now verses 33 through 35. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel began again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from their hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. Uh, so the people are fickle. Gideon's gone, and everyone's like, no one cares about his family anymore. Doesn't, I, I, I am just sorry for Abimelech. What's your name? Didn't he die? Who are you? It says, it says they have no respect now for Gideon's family. They've stopped worshiping God. They're worshiping Baal again. They played the harlot. We need a Savior. No man can save us. No man can protect us. No man can lead us. The world is going to look for a man to lead them. They're going to find the Antichrist. They're going to give him thunderous applause. They're going to vote him in. He is going to be 
the best statesman, the best actor, the most charismatic human being the world has ever seen. Everyone is going to give him thunderous applause, and he is going to lead this planet into the greatest tribulation and trial that the world has ever seen. We need Jesus. And we need to see Jesus in people. Now, I also want to point out one other thing. As backslidden as Gideon had become, he was still a preserver. He was still holding back where the nation wanted to go. This also has some insight into society. You know, we can criticize the church, and we should, when they're not walking with the Word of God, when they're not following in the Bible, when they're not obedient to God. But even the church today, in its, my opinion, backslidden state, is still a preserver to this planet on where it will go when the rapture of the church takes us home. Because Gideon, in his backslidden state, even if he was worshiping and compromising, he still was a believer in God and a follower of God, even though he was not following his commandments, was still holding back. Because the second he was gone, what did the Bible say? As soon as Gideon was dead, that's what it says there in verse 33, as soon as he died, the people turned to Baal instead of the Lord our God, Jehovah. We need to stop being so hard on one sense on the church because even in our backslidden state, even in your backslidden state at times in your life, when you were in the wrong crowd with the wrong people, the Lord was still using you to hold back just a little bit. Just going that, no, don't go too far. And the, the Lord's doing the same thing now. Or, even better, we could follow as close to the Lord as possible, be constantly be refreshed in His grace, minimize the flesh in our lives, and we can walk in fulfilled, happy lives with Christ, knowing that it is not us, it is Him, and we do it in His power, not our own. Because remember what Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This Gideon and Gideon chapter, in chapter 8, that's me. That guy needs to die. We don't want him around. What we do want is men and women that are filled with the Holy Spirit, that are walking with the Lord and obedient with the commandments, because when that happens, all of us are better. And then the bodies don't hit the floor. <laughs> Usually when we're building stages, that's when that happened last time. I'm just kidding. Mike's the only one laughing because he's the only one that knows. Let's close out this evening in prayer. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you know us intimately. You know the dark sides of us. You know the parts of our flesh when we're weak, when we're hurting, when we're tired. And you don't give up on us. And we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. You would refresh us to know that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. Fill us with your spirit to be yours, Lord, used by you in your power and not our own. Help us to grow in you. Help us to crucify the flesh and the lust thereof, to help others, to bless others, to follow your example and not man's. We thank you for all these things as you lead us in prayer this evening. In Jesus' name.